Thank you for tuning in to Avant Life's weekly podcast. We hope this message inspires you, stirs your faith, and leaves you blessed. We're starting a new series today that I'm really excited about. Why? Because basically we're listening to Jesus talk. Um, we're starting a new series called The Revolutionary Road. And basically we're going to journey through the parables that Jesus talks about. He brings a dramatic change in his parables. He brings a revolutionary road that we get to walk on through his parables. And so we're going to be going to our great teacher again. I love spending time in the Gospels. I love spending time just sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening. And I pray that we would have that same posture that we find in the book of Luke where, where Jesus visits Mary and Martha and Mary just sits at his feet. She just reclines at his feet just to hear his words, that that would be our position as we come into this series, that it wouldn't just be another series that we're listening to, but we're we're taking time listening to the words of Jesus, that we're sitting at his feet and soaking in what he is speaking to us. So I'm excited about this series because... Jesus' parables, they, they lure both the intellectual and the simple, and, they invi- and He invites us to walk this walk, uh, this new road that challenges our conduct and challenges our practice, how we walk. Um, we're going to be turning today into the Gospel of Luke. This, we're starting with a really well-known parable, the Good Samaritan. Um, so I'm going to read... Luke chapter 10, verse 25 to 37. I hope you've got your Bibles nearby. This is an occasion where Jesus teaches and he teaches through parables. So you ready? I said, are you ready? Can't hear you. Thanks, Mark. (laughs) Okay, let's go. Luke chapter 10, 25 to 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said this, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan... Oh, skip. So too, a Levite... Not skipping. Verse 33. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. 
Holy Spirit, we just invite you into this place right now that as we learn from the words of Jesus, that you would bring uh, conviction to our hearts where we need conviction, comfort where we need comfort, and guidance where we need guidance. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we have this dialogue between Jesus and essentially this lawyer, like he's an expert of the law. He's an expert in what is considered to be called the Torah. And the lawyer would know what his rights are. He would know what is required of him as an expert in the law. Yet Jesus revolutionizes this thinking by introducing this parable and bringing about the comparison of one who would inherit the kingdom of God, one who desires eternal life, walking on the road to eternal life. And he, he starts drawing a different comparison to what it is to inherit eternal life, to what it is to actually be a son and daughter of the kingdom. The lawyer is actually looking at the kingdom of God as this, this far off distant thing. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? What do I need to actually grasp the kingdom of God in, in the, the afterlife essentially is what he's saying. Yet he doesn't realize that just by asking the very man in front of him, by asking this rabbi, Jesus, how do I inherit this kingdom? He's literally looking at the inheritance of the kingdom. And it's a pretty incredible convergence of old world order and new covenant. And the obvious point that we see in this parable is one that for those of you who grew up in church, you would have heard it in in Sunday school. For those of you who may have just been hearing this for the first time, the obvious point is that when one has the means to provide care and help to someone in need, we're required to do so. This is not something we're unfamiliar with. This is not something that the world is unfamiliar with. Kindness is a language that is known everywhere. Being being able to provide a need to someone in need is something that we are so well aware of in society. It's something that we we, um, prioritize in secular and Christian context. So... This is not the point I'm going to be focusing on today because there's something underlying in how Jesus, what Jesus is actually saying in, in regards to this expert of the law. And I want us to focus in on this, but first we're going to lay down a couple of building blocks, a couple of bricks on the road, as we would say. So let's have a look at context. Firstly, who were the priests? So the priests were from the tribe of Levi and they were commonly descendants of Aaron, which basically means they're religious royalty. These are like the kings and queens of religion, um, kings mainly because women weren't viewed that way back then. How hasn't that changed, hey? How has that changed is what I'm saying through Christ. (laughs) Um, They were considered guardians of the holy place. So these are like the guardians of the temple. These are like, like it's kind of a cool image when you think about these priests being guardians of the holy place. Um, They took on the holiness of the sanctuary through different responsibilities and different rites. So it was their responsibility to make sure the temple, the holy place was how it should be. They were the image of holiness for the rest of the Israelites to aspire to. Basically, walk in their way is what they were. For the Israelites, they said, you need to follow our footsteps. This is how we must live as people devoted to God, who love God and love our neighbor. They were the image of holiness for the rest of the Israelites. And they were responsible to to determine whether something or someone was clean or unclean. So those are like some of the rights and responsibilities of the priests. 
these religious royalty. And then who were the Levites? Basically, the Levites were also from the tribe of Levi, uh, yet distinguished from the line of Aaron. So they're probably more relatable because they don't have such a status as, as, say, the priests do. But they still held religious and also secular functions um, within being a part of the kingdom of God. They assisted the priest. Basically, they followed in the priest's footsteps. So you can imagine the priests being like the head leaders and then these Levites were commissioned to follow and support and help the priests and all that they did. They were singers. They were gatekeepers. They assisted in collecting the tithe outside of the temple and they assisted in preparation of burnt offerings. So they, you can see the responsibilities that they have in maintaining the temple, in maintaining the religion, in maintaining Jewish culture. So what are the potential reasons that these guys would walk by then? Let's have a look at the road. So Jerusalem was known as this, as this holy city. It was a city of worship with the, the temple, while Jericho was often a residence for priests and Levites. So often that road between Jericho and Jerusalem was traversed by priests and Levites on their journey to make offering, on their journey to the temple. Um, this road was actually quite known to be dangerous and one would not travel alone. It would be considered foolish to be on this road alone because robbers and bandits were quite common over there. The man attacked by the robbers is actually supposed to be a Jewish man. Um, and the journey from the temple to the home shouldn't be traveled alone. And isn't that an interesting thing? Like, let's just pause on that for a second. The journey from Jerusalem to Jericho, from the presence of God, taking the presence of God into your everyday life, into your home, was not one meant to be traveled alone. When you traveled it alone, you were more susceptible to the robbers, to the burglars, to the ones that would leave you half dead along the road. See, it's quite interesting. The robbers took off this man's clothes. Now, clothes weren't just like a covering. They were an identity tag. It was like, I can tell where you're from. I can tell who you belong to by what you wear. Isn't it interesting that these robbers removed all sense of identity from this man as he traveled alone? He traveled alone in his walk from the presence, Jerusalem, the place where they offered their worship to his home, to his everyday busy life. He was stripped of his identity. And the truth is, church, that there are people that travel on the same road as you that will strip you of your identity, that will leave you half dead, and they're not concerned about helping you. Their intent is to rob you and stop you from reaching your destination. They plant seeds of doubt, of bitterness and despair. And when you have succumbed to those injuries, they will leave you on the wayside looking for their next victim. The key lesson that we learn from this man who was attacked, the victim, is that when you allow yourself to travel in isolation, you are more susceptible to the thieves and robbers. It's in these moments that your identity starts to be questioned. When doubt seeps in, when your, ident- your identity is stripped from you because you've been traveling a road that you weren't meant to travel alone. And we can learn a great lesson in regards to our faith walk when it comes to actually that journey. We are not meant to be in isolation. We always say isolation leads to desolation. Please don't get me wrong. If you need to be isolated for health reasons, that's not what I'm saying. Hear what I'm saying. The journey of faith that we are on, the journey that we walk, every single one of us, is not meant to be done in isolation. You will be more susceptible to the attack of the enemy. So don't do it alone. So the reasons that these... 
Levites and priests would have avoided uh, the man would be the second reason being that um, concerns for purity. The dilemma before the priest was whether the man was dead or not. See, in Leviticus, no one ever reads Leviticus, but it makes, honestly, it reveals so much about the word. In Leviticus, we read what a priest is prohibited from. They are not allowed to go near dead bodies. They would become unclean if they were near dead bodies. In making sure that they are uh, coming into the temple and bringing the burnt offerings uh, and, and doing all that they need to for the temple, they were not to go near a dead body just in case they defiled themselves. Look it up, Leviticus, these were their laws. And so they were prohibited to go near this guy based upon purity codes. They needed to play it safe because defilement actually had severe consequences for the priest, for the priest's family, and for his finances. Let's have a look at this. If the priest became unclean, this is what was required. One, he must return to Jerusalem, stand by the eastern gate with the unclean, heaven forbid, and go through the process of purification, which would not only take time, but it would take resources. It would take a loss of wage because he'd have to buy a heifer and that heifer would have to be sacrificed. And it could take up to a week and it would be a significant cost to the priest and to the Levite. That was one of the reasons why you could kind of justify walking by. Well, I have these responsibilities and I have these laws that kind of these codes of purity that exempt me from helping this guy. If the priest became unclean, it was not only a cost of time and wages, but the perception of an unclean priest was not one that they would have wanted. It's quite interesting because separation within the Jewish culture of the time was quite, was something that was practiced because in separation, there was preservation. So if they separated themselves from things that were unclean, they were preserving what was true and what was clean. That was a part of the Jewish customs, the Jewish traditions. Torah demanded, the law demanded that they upheld the purity codes. So the question then was, do they observe and obey the law based upon cleanliness and purity or upon love of the neighbor. Basically, you've got these two laws and it's so interesting watching this dialogue between Jesus and this expert of the law, these two laws. And it's basically saying, which is the greatest? And we get asked this question as believers all the time. In how you live your life, in how you journey along that road, what command is greatest in your steps? Is it one of purity codes or is it one of loving thy neighbour? And so they've got this predicament. This lawyer's going, what's, okay, how's this story going? Because I know what's required of the Levites. I know what's required of the priests. But because of their religious duties, there was no room left for the duty that every person, especially a priest and a Levite, has for a neighbour to another. The reality is God and people are better served by deeds of mercy than by religious rituals. That is what Jesus is trying to get at the heart of. From the example of the priest and Levite comes the principle that their religious status or legalistic reasoning does not excuse loveliness. It does not excuse loveliness. The question that we must ask ourselves is what reigns supreme in how we walk on this road? What reigns supreme? 
Because Jesus is challenging the supremacy of the religious ritual and purity laws over the second greatest commandment. That's essentially what's, what's happening in this moment. The lawyer knew the commands. He quotes them. For him, it wasn't a matter of understanding. It was a matter of implementing. See, you can be all-knowing with no empathy, which will result in empty deeds. A couple of weeks ago, we put out in the newsletter, I wrote out in the newsletter, this passage that we, passage that we find in Matthew 11, verse 19. And it's Jesus' response to criticism he's received in his behavior. So basically, like the Pharisees are like, hey, you're not behaving the way that we would expect you to behave as a rabbi. So like they were questioning him. And this is Jesus' response. He says, the son of man came eating and drinking and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This is, what, this is it. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. So you can have all the knowledge in the world, but a lack of empathy results in empty deeds. See, we're not called to purely be knowledgeable in the Word of God because knowledge of the Word of God should actually inspire us to be people of deed, people of action. What codes have you placed in your life that exempt you from being a neighbour? What codes have you, have you put in place so that you can justify walking by? For the priests and the Levites, ceremonial purity won the day over that man's life. Terrible, isn't it? But how many times have we forsaken the love of a neighbor for the sake of what seems like the religious ritual demanding of us? Let's look at the Samaritan. Who were the Samaritans? Samaritans are interesting characters. They were viewed as half Jewish and they were excluded from any Jewish covenant promises. There was a big estrangement between uh, Samaritans and the Jewish. Um, There was a lot of ethnic, political and religious animosity between them. Uh, They were viewed as unclean with no concern for the oral laws and traditions. So they're complete, complete opposite, right? It's like, whereas the priests and the Levites were the ones that determined what was clean around unclean and they upheld the oral tradition and law. The Samaritans were viewed as unclean and they, with no concern for the oral laws and traditions. So the second commandment, there wasn't something that they, that they necessarily like lived by yet. Let's keep going. There was constant fighting with the Jewish people, particularly regarding their different places of worship. Even the lawyer's response to Jesus as to who actually was the neighbour, the one who showed mercy. He can't even say the name Samaritan. And actually, it's quite interesting, Romano and Jewish historian Josephus writes about this hostility that was fueled when the Samaritans desecrated the Jerusalem temple by scattering bones in it on one Passover night. Like, you can see and feel the tension, right? Like, they put bones in the temple in Jerusalem, So I don't think the Samaritans and Jews were really on speaking terms. One would not expect a Jewish rabbi, being Jesus, to give a positive picture of someone who had scattered bones in the Jerusalem temple. This was a bombshell to the audience. Furthermore, the chapter prior to Jesus talking of this parable in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, we have this encounter. 
As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem and he sent messages ahead and went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Okay, Um, but Jesus turned and rebuked them. Okay, so the Samaritans, literally, they've just kicked Jesus out of this Samaritan town, don't want anything to do with him. And in this story, in this parable, Jesus's own words are being tested. The words that we find in Matthew 5 verse 43 what Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. By Jesus actually using a Samaritan in this parable, he's proving his own words right. He's going, no, I'm going to use what you think I should be up against. And I'm going to actually draw attention to the love that we should have. That's groundbreaking stuff. Like, If someone kicked me out of their town and like didn't want me around and were really aggressive and just like, like being kicked out of a town is kind of a big deal, I would be really bitter and I would be really angry and I would talk about how the injustice of it and I would get really mad. We all know we would. Like we'd get bitter and it's unjust and they shouldn't do this. Yet Jesus literally then uses those people and elevates them by the love portrayed by the actions of that Samaritan. That is crazy because isn't it just perfect? And isn't our Jesus just perfect, even in the way that he tells stories to plant a seed of maybe that there's a new order of things? This love that Jesus talks about in this parable is shown by the Samaritan, not by the Jew which is interesting. Verse 33, it said, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. Both the Levite and the priest just walked. Whereas we see the Samaritan, his heart, his heart made movement before his feet did. And so often we're in such a fast paced world where we're just going from one thing to the other that we don't allow our heart to make the move. And if our hearts aligned with the words of Christ, this teaching of Christ, our heart should be the thing that's dictating our steps, but we're just going knee-jerk reaction to knee-jerk reaction and just emotion leading us rather than a heart transformed leading us. The Samaritan was the one elevated by his good deeds. To put a Samaritan above the Jewish priest and Levites would have challenged the pride of the religious elitism. Challenges that pride. How often does our pride get challenged because somebody who doesn't seem like they're worthy or maybe that they're unclean or maybe they haven't done enough time or maybe they haven't had a lifelong encounter with Jesus but only just met Him on the road. How often do we dismiss them because of their status and say, well, no, they can't do that. We can't elevate them. Jesus literally elevated a Samaritan, Samaritans that hit him out of the town one chapter earlier. Shouldn't we walk in those same steps? Having encouraged his listener, the Jewish lawyer, he encourages him to identify as the victim. He's not encouraged to identify as the Samaritan or the priest or the Levite. He's encouraged to be the victim. And in that, not only does this story describe the victim's salvation at the hands of, 
of a nameless ethnic enemy, but also the neglect of supposed friends. This parable takes the outsider and proves his actions righteous, whereas the insider's fails. The great question, the big question throughout all this parable is found in verse 29. The lawyer says he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbour? He wanted the parameters. He wanted to know who is the person that I actually owe this allegiance to. The Greek word used as neighbour in this passage does not reflect proximity. It actually is more reflective of community and fellowship. So essentially he's saying, who is my friend? Who, who is allowed to be my friend? Who am I allowed to have community with? Who am I meant to have fellowship with? Because I shouldn't have fellowship with the Samaritans. They're not Jewish. They're not my neighbor. Because you've got to understand the, the culture of the time when they said, you need to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Well, myself is Jewish. So I love myself. And so I love my neighbor who is Jewish. And so it was these identifying factors that actually put parameters for that love. And so we have this complete conflict in this lawyer's mind of going, well, who, who am I allowed to have fellowship with? Who is allowed to be in my community? Before Christ goes to the cross, he is breaking down that dividing wall in his parables. And it all comes into fruition when we see him rise again, as we celebrated last Sunday. But he's breaking down this dividing wall in their minds now. Who is my friend? Essentially, is a neighbor is someone who looks like me, acts like me, believes what I believe. Those are the parameters and those are whom I will love. Those are whom I will show mercy to. Samaritans don't get a shoo-in. See, it's actually easier for us to profess our love of God and to observe religious rituals as proof of this love than it is to show love for one's neighbor. When we start looking at the broader context of what is a neighbor... We find it way easier to come to church, tithe, worship, do Bible devotions, but I'm not loving that person. We find it easier to show our love for God in the things that we do inside and we forget that there's an outside world. We forget that our neighbour now, there is no dividing wall. You can't say, well, yeah, I don't need to show that person love. Essentially, Jesus is saying, everyone is your neighbour Everyone is your friend. This is crazy stuff for the time. Yet we're like, yeah, but that's Jesus' time. We don't do that. Let's talk a little bit more. What qualifies as a friend? See, in Greco-Roman culture, everything was based upon this principle of mutual exchange. You do for me and I'll do for you. Your actions have a value attached to them. And so I will have an action with the same value to keep the friendship contract in play. Basically, friendship was contract. That's how society operated. It's like friendship wasn't based upon relationship, necessarily purely relationship. There was a contract within it. Who qualifies as a friend? Well, they need to be able to actually have a certain duty that they perform. See, to be a friend was to actually have a duty. The friend must be available for one another, for service, concern, for life itself, in hospitality, and even when it's inconvenient. This is how society operated, this economy of action. What you can do for me has a certain value, 
and I will repay that value with something of the equivalent nature, friend. That's what they're saying. That's how they're living their life. Friendship was based upon contract. And if you didn't meet the contract requirements, there was nothing holding another accountable to treating you as a friend. Luke 14, Jesus gives us this example in verse 12 to 14. When you give a luncheon or a supper, do not invite your friends or your siblings or your relatives or your rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return and you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. See, this friendship was based upon repayment, constant repayment, this constant contract between one and another. That's what a neighbor was. That's what a friend was. It was give not to gain. Jesus is saying, give not to gain, but give to bless. That's what that passage is saying, is that don't invite these people that are just going to keep repaying your deeds. It's just a cycle that you get into. And it's just meaningless if you're not actually blessing someone. Jesus is actually saying, stop repaying each other. Stop having relationship with each other out of guilt, out of what is required. Start blessing each other. That's what Luke 14 says, bless someone. Yet we go, yeah, but we don't do that. We don't have friendship contracts, don't we? Isn't it interesting that once, what once was courtesy has become legalistic and turned into an obligation of return? Let me give you an example. Hey, sweetie, they were nice to you, so you should be nice back. It starts in infancy. We don't realize it that we're saying to our children, you need to have an exchange rather than saying, why don't you go bless that person? How far have we been walking on this road where we're literally exchanging good deeds? It's like, it's like playing tennis. I hate tennis. Literally, when Ben and I were on our honeymoon, Ben used to play professional tennis, right? Like he trained with one of the Williams sisters. I don't know anything about tennis. He loves tennis. He was really good. And our honeymoon, he's like, let's play tennis together. I'm like, yeah, sure, that'd be fine. Oh, my husband. He got me right in the eye the first shot. And do you know what I did? I threw my racket down and I left (laughs) to my hotel. (laughs) Still in the marriage. I hate tennis. And this is like a tennis game. This is like the worst thing for me. It's this constant going backwards and forwards. And I'm like, don't you just get tired of that? That our friendships, our relationships are based upon this tennis match? Who can give the best serve? Well, I've got to return that serve. I'm like, that's exhausting. Even tennis players like having a rest. Hey, sweetie, they were nice, so you should be nice back. I've been guilty of saying that to my children, not realizing that that is a brick on the road that I'm leading them to. And I was like, no, we have to change our language. This isn't about repayment. This isn't about me giving so I get. This is about blessing. Jesus literally says, bless people. Don't repay them. Don't invite these people that just want repayment. Don't live in this legalistic mindset anymore. You are not bound by that law. Give not to gain, but to bless. How often have our courtesies just been distorted to become legalistic obligations of return. Matthew 7, verse 12. We love to take this passage and distort it. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Do you know how we read that more often than not? 
do to others and they will return the favour. That's how they say, well, if I do that, then they'll give back to me. But this passage emphasis isn't on what you get, but on what you give. This verse has been distorted so many times for selfish gain. The emphasis is not on what we have from them. It's what we would give. Even in, like, honestly, I remember sitting in, as a, as a teenager, I'd sit in church and I'd hear messages and I'd be like, yeah, that's so good. That person needs to hear that. And like, I'd be like, that word over there, the words would be like at me and I'd be like, deflect, deflect, deflect. And it never actually got to my heart. And then one day Jesus just turned up and was like, Emma, this is for you. Like, you need to hear these words. You need to actually understand that this word right now, church, wherever you are, whatever you're dealing with, is for you. I don't know what's going on in your world. Jesus does. And he knows that this word is for you. Don't be like, yeah, Mark really needs to do that. We know what Mark needs to do, okay? He's great. He is. So stop looking at these passages of Scripture and distorting them for selfish gain. We've got to get back to the heart of the matter, which is that we are meant to bless. We are not meant to be constantly repaying good and repaying good and repaying good because that's what we're obliged to do. We are honestly, we're treating our friendships like mathematical equations. Friendship is not math. No one likes math. I think when the equation doesn't match up, when we treat people, when we treat our friendships like mathematical equations and the equation doesn't match up, we then punish the one who doesn't bring the goods. We hold them, to, hold them ransom based upon a gift we demand repayment for. Yet gifts don't demand repayment. Gifts are not loans. Friendship are not contracts. Stop holding each other ransom. Stop returning friendship out of guilt. We've been set free from all of that. This is the revolutionary road that we would not walk that way anymore. Friend, friend, it means so little now. It's a Facebook request or it's a polite Canadian greeting. Hey, friend. This parable isn't outdated. It's not just purely for the lawyer back in Matthew 11, 10, sorry. The way we view and approach our friends is not so very different to the contract in which they had. It's just passive, It may not be as outwardly expressed. We may not have it inbuilt in how our society operates, but we do definitely have it as a passive thing. That when we don't get what we expected, and more often than not, what we didn't communicate, we hold people ransom. We hold the friendship ransom. We say, well, I'll invite you back into my friendship group when I'm repaid. Don't we do that? Isn't it sad that we do that? This is the legalistic mindset that Jesus is trying to challenge in the lawyer. By telling this parable, Jesus is breaking down barriers of our legalistic mindset that separate humanity from each other and demand repayment of good deeds. You know what I love about this story of the Samaritan is that he said, I will reverse you. He said to the innkeeper, I will reverse you, reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. See, For the priest, for the Levite and the Samaritan, there was a cost for helping this man. They all had a cost. They all had time and money that it would have cost to be a friend, to be a neighbour to this man. Yet the Samaritan who was viewed as unclean, as no concern with the oral laws and traditions that we find as, as, as we find in Leviticus, yet he's the one who fulfills the law expressed in his actions. 
Not only does He show mercy, but by the very fact that He is not required to do so, He turns the cultural expectations on their head. He pays for all the costs, as well as any reimbursement for further expenses with no contract for the victim in sight. It's a gift. It's a blessing. It's not a repayment. See, under the old order, neighbours would repay each other. This man indebted himself for the sake of a wounded man and in doing so revolutionises the road we once journeyed on. So what do we do out of requirement? What do we do out of obligation? What do we do out of guilt? Are our actions based upon a heart positioning or legalistic actions? To say then that it's only our heart that matters and our actions are purely legalistic is counter to what Christ says when He says, go and do likewise. In going and doing likewise, He wants us to walk. He wants us to have deeds. He wants us to have actions. But He wants to make sure that the bricks that we're laying down for that road are built not on legalism anymore. They're not built on a dividing wall. They're built on the freedom that we find face to face with our great teacher. From the man in the ditch emerges the lesson that life was not meant to be journeyed alone and that even one that is supposed your enemy is your neighbour. For the audience, the lawyer and the, and the wounded man had to learn that the one who was perceived by history as an enemy is in fact a neighbour. This parable rules out any possibility of creating enemies. The entire world is in need and therefore the entire world deserves our friendship. Christ has taken the second greatest commandment to love one's neighbour and revolutionised it by having it applied universally, not selectively. So let's not go back to selective friendship. Let's not go back to putting parameters and saying, well, you have to look like me and you have to talk like me and you have to believe what I believe for me to show you love. By Jesus instructing the lawyer to go and do likewise, He's not merely asking him to imitate the Samaritan's ethical behaviour towards those he finds in assistance. He's actually calling him to take a newly realised aspect of this command in which his enemy, the Samaritan, is now, based upon the Samaritan's actions, his neighbour. This parable isn't about a mugging. It's about a new order of things, a revolutionary road ahead for all those who would hear it. Go and do likewise, Jesus says. This is the road that we must take. This is our command. This road is not built on law. It's not built on equation. It's built on the rock of Christ's teaching, which we find Matthew 7, 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had a foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the stream rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. This is in Matthew 7. This is the end of the Sermon of the Mount where Jesus has just challenged legalism in the heart, where He's challenged the way of thinking of those who follow Him. 
It's not just for the non-Christians that they would have salvation in Him. Yes, it is. It's for those who believe in Him and build on Him. That they would build on the teaching that we do not have a dividing wall of legalistic action as our primary code of behaviour. That we've been freed from that. That Jesus, through His teachings, challenges the very legalism that we would cling to. We're not under legalism, we're under freedom. We need to lay down the old order of things and start taking steps on this revolutionary road that Christ leads us on. Church, the challenge today found in this story of the Good Samaritan is that who are you letting be your friend? Who are you permitting as clean and unclean? Because I can tell you now, that if we start picking up the old order of things, we will rob people of the freedom that we find in the new order of things through Christ Jesus. Why don't you stand with me this morning? Wherever you are, why don't you just stand? We're just gonna head up into a time of worship again, but just right now where you are, why don't you just close your eyes? Why don't you fix your heart on Jesus and on the way that He wants you to live? God, all the legalism, all the ways that we have held people ransom in our relationships, how we've qualified them or unqualified them as someone deserving of our love, Lord God. Would You repave that road for us, Lord Jesus? Would You take what once was and would You put it aside? Would You transform us that as we take steps that we would leave every legalistic bone in our body aside as we embrace loving You, God, and loving our neighbours. That we would be revolutionised in the way that You teach us. That we would not have contracts with people, but we would show love and mercy and good deeds. In Jesus' name, it's Worship Church. We hope you enjoyed this message. We would love you to subscribe to our weekly podcast. Other ways you can connect with Avant Life is through YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. Or check out our website at avantlifechurch.com.